Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm a producer, a host, a, a, a gad about town here at How Stuff Works, and I love all things tech. And we're going to continue our series of listener requests about tech that relates back to music. Today, I'm talking about a request from listener Gellert. Gellert wrote in to ask that I do an episode about DJ technology. Here's the thing. There's a ton to cover in DJ tech. And I could have just done one sort of overview episode, but I don't feel like that's really the spirit of this show. And I don't think it just, I don't think it will do justice to Gellert's request. And I don't think it really serves you guys well as listeners. So instead, I'm going to take my time. And for this particular episode, I'm going to focus on the origin of one piece of technology used in DJ work, and that would be the predecessor of the turntable. That's right, I'm not even really talking about the turntable in this episode, because as it turns out, no pun intended, I'm probably going to be saying turn a lot this episode, but trust me, I'm not intending it to be kind of a pun. But as it turns out, it's a very long and rich history, and it's really interesting. Well before it ever becomes what we would typically call a turntable or a record player. So this is part one, and in part two, we will continue that story before moving on to other listener requests that also have to do with music. So uh, a few years ago, I probably would have made a joke. In fact, I know I would have made the joke that most of you guys out there have no idea what a turntable is because... Vinyl had gone out of favor after a while, and really the only people who were interested in vinyl were collectors and DJs, and everyone else had kind of lost any connection to it. But since then, vinyl has obviously experienced a renaissance. You've got a lot more bands that are producing albums in vinyl. You got a lot more companies out there making equipment to play vinyl. You got a lot more people out there interested in buying it. So Heck, the the Facebook friendship anniversary videos that you get whenever it's your anniversary of making friends with someone on Facebook, that features a vinyl album being placed on a turntable. So the references are out there. So I'm going to assume y'all know what a turntable is. Now, in my neck of the woods, we sometimes would call these record players. But you should know record players and turntables are technically two different types of technology. They're very similar. A record player has a turntable incorporated into it. But you shouldn't just use the terms interchangeably like I am probably going to do because old habits die hard, y'all. So this is a really big story. And like I said, this is part one of the history of turntables and how they work. In our next episode, we'll pick up where we left off today. And uh, spoiler alert, that'll be just before World War II. But we're going to go from its origins up to that point today. And then maybe we'll start chatting in the next episode about some of the features you'll find on modern turntables, specifically the ones that professional DJs use, because they've got some... uh metaphorical bells and whistles that you won't find on your typical record player at home. Now, I feel like I've talked a lot about the physics of sound over the past few episodes, so I'm just going to hit the high points so that we have that foundation. Sound is vibration, and we primarily hear sounds through these vibrations affecting the tympanic membrane in our ears, which transfers those vibrations to structures called cochlea inside our inner ear. And inside the cochlea, There's fluid that when it moves, due to these vibrations, it stimulates special nerve cells that then send impulses to the brain, which interprets all of that as sound. I think that's the most important bits that I could hit. But remembering that sound is a physical phenomena. It is vibration. That's the important part when it comes to the history of turntables and recorded sound. Now, the idea of a device that could play back sound dates back much further than our ability to achieve such a goal. This what came as a big surprise to me. So there was a great French novelist, Savignin de Cyrano de Bergerac, who lived during the 17th century. He actually wrote about such a potential gadget, not in a way of or not as a means of making one. Like, it wasn't a set of instructions, but rather just a concept he had. And this is, by the way, the person 
whom the play Cyrano de Bergerac was based upon. It was a real person, and he actually did have quite the schnoz on him. If you know the story of Cyrano de Bergerac, you know he was uh, regarded as a man who was very gifted in language, a wonderful poet, but also, and not to mention a deadly duelist, but also a guy who had a really big nose. As it turns out, the real Cyrano de Bergerac was all those things. But most of the other elements in the famous play based off of his life are largely invented. Anyway, Cyrano wrote the following about a device he discovered, let's say, in a dream. He was dreaming about the moon and possible inhabitants of the moon. And he, in this dream, he encounters a, a box and he says, when I opened a box, I found something made of metal, somewhat like our clocks, full of an endless number of little springs and tiny machines. It was indeed a book, but it was a miraculous one that had no pages or printed letters. It was a book to be read not with the eyes, but with ears. When anyone wants to read, he winds up the machine with a large number of keys of all kinds. Then he turns the indicator to the chapter he wants to listen to. As though from the mouth of a person or a musical instrument come all the distinct and different sounds that the upper-class moon beings used in their language. When I thought about this marvelous way of making books, I was no longer surprised that the young people of that country know more at the age of 16 or 18 than the gray beards of our world world. They can read as soon as they can talk and are never at a loss for reading material. In their rooms, on walks, in town, during voyages, on foot, or on horseback, they can have 30 books in their pockets or hanging on the pommels of their saddles. They need only wind a spring to hear one or more chapters or a whole book, if they wish. Thus, you always have with you all the great men, both living and dead, who speak to you in their own voices." Now, I think that's actually a remarkable dream when you think about it, because what Cyrano de Bergerac is describing in this fanciful description of a dream are are things that we have today. The idea of having a device that's able to play back for you an audio copy of a book. I mean, we have entire businesses that are built around making audio books available and then devices that can play those. And so Sierra knows just being fanciful, but today we actually have that stuff. So this was kind of amazing science fiction from this, uh, this French author back, uh, in, in hundreds of years ago. So it's a charming dream, but as I said, it was little more than wishful thinking in Cyrano's day. It would take two more centuries before someone attempted a practical means to convert sound into a recorded medium, and it was in a peculiar but a clever way. Before there was ever a phonograph or a gramophone, and certainly long before there were turntables or record players, there was the phonotograph. A 19th century French bookseller named Edouard Léon Scott de Martinville came up with the idea, or Martin Villa, if you prefer. He came up with this idea, and it was a, a pretty cool one. In the 1850s, Eddie, as I call him, was reflecting on the growing art and science of photography, which was a very young technology at that time. Photographs were able to capture moments in still images. But what if you could capture sound in a similar way and make a record of actual audible stimuli? Scott created a design for a machine that would do just that. It did not record sound directly to a medium, exactly, but rather made a record of sound upon a visual format. He proposed mounting an acoustic trumpet over a pane of glass that was coated in lamp black. So sort of like a, kind of like an ink. The flared end of the trumpet would face the sounds you wish to document. So it's almost like the business end of a microphone. You would put the sound into that side of it. The small end of the trumpet had a very thin membrane stretched across it. So uh, if it were a classical trumpet, the part that you would blow in, the mouthpiece, that would have a little membrane on it. Mounted on the center of this membrane, facing away from the interior of the trumpet and toward the pane of glass, would be a small needle made from a flexible but stiff material, such as boar's hair. This needle would make very light contact with that pane of glass, just enough so that if the needle would move due to vibrations in the membrane, it would disturb the lamp black. 
Vibrations in the membrane. Now I feel like singing a song, but I'm not gonna. Scott proposed moving the lamp black so that the needle would gently drag across it, and then speaking into the trumpet, you would create these vibrations, and that would end up tracing patterns on the lamp black. You would smear the lamp black away, and what would be left is a pattern that would represent whatever the sound was that went into the trumpet. So you would have a record of what happened, just dragged in this lamp black. Now, he didn't intend for this device to have any useful ability to play back sound. Instead, he thought it would create a type of natural stenography, a way of actually taking down dictation, for example. It would be a visual record of the noises that were present during the recording session. And perhaps one day, with enough study, we would be able to read the words that were spoken simply by looking at the patterns that had been left behind in the lamp black. So in other words, you might say the same sound over and over and over again while you use this machine. You look for the pattern that's made from speaking that sound while the machine is in use. And then you say, all right, every time I see this particular shape in this kind of glass, I know that it was that sound that made this shape. That was kind of the basis of his idea. As it turns out, this wasn't that far-fetched. In fact, it's now been done more than a century later. In 2008, historians were able to use optical imaging to scan phonograph cylinders and play back the sound. There's a great example of one that recorded someone singing Eau Claire de la Lune, a French folk song. The sound file the historians generated at first didn't sound anything like that. It didn't sound recognizable at all, at least not to me. But they built in some algorithms to clean stuff up, to adjust the playback speed, to remove some harmonics, to enhance some other elements of it. And then once they were done, it was unmistakably Eau Claire de la Lune. By 1859, Scott partnered with a man named Rudolf Koenig who specialized in building precise instrumentation. He was a machinist. The two determined that one necessary requirement was a means to have an accurate and precise measurement of the passing of time in relation to the creation of a recording. By using a tuning fork of a known pitch, the two could determine the amount of time that passed during any part of a recording. A tuning fork will always vibrate at the same frequency. The specific frequency depends upon the tuning fork. So if you have a tuning fork with a fundamental frequency of the note A, it will vibrate at 440 times per second or 440 hertz. So if you have an A tuning fork and you strike it and then you put that next to one of these phonographs as it's recording, you'll get this very even pattern that's made from the vibration of that needle. And if you count the repetition of that pattern, essentially the wave that you're seeing, you should be able to say, well, this this stretch represents one second because there are 440 of those repeated patterns here. And we know that the tuning fork, it vibrates at 440 times per second. So by counting those up and we get to 440, we say, all right, that represents one second of recording time. And according to the National Park Service website, Scott's original design would move the glass pane across the needle at a speed of about one meter per second, which is pretty darn fast. Now, the reason I mentioned Scott's work is to point out that many different people were thinking about ways to preserve sound, whether in a format that could be played back or some other method of notation. And a few looked at Scott's work and began to wonder if such a thing would be possible with the phonograph. One such smarty pants was Alexander Graham Bell, who theorized that if you could find a means to trace the patterns created by the phonograph and transmit vibrations to a membrane, you could recreate the sound that originally was responsible for the markings. In other words, if you reverse this process where the patterns that are on the pane of glass can transfer vibrations back to a needle, back to a membrane, you should be able to replicate the sound that made those patterns in the first place. But he couldn't quite figure out how to do it. Plus, he was kind of busy with other stuff, like inventing the telephone. In April 1877, a French poet named Charles Croix suggested a method he thought might just work. And 
This is where I really marvel at how French poets were so forward-thinking and inventive. Anyway, Monsieur Crow said that if you could etch sound into a medium, such as a disc of tempered steel, you could create an apparatus that could use those etchings to recreate the original sound. He called his proposed invention a paleophone. He filed a paper on the subject with the French Academy of Science, where it more or less was forgotten about for a few months. Meanwhile, another person was at work on this concept, and that was the wizard of Menlo Park himself, Thomas Edison. Now, a moment here. I think Edison gets an awful lot of credit for this field, and it is good to remind ourselves that he was not the only big thinker out there. It's also important to acknowledge that Edison employed a lot of people, and many of those people contributed in very meaningful ways to the things that he had invented. So... We really should mention that a lot of Edison's inventions were truly collaborative efforts, at least when it got to the part of taking an idea and making it a real thing. Now, that's not to take away from Edison. He really was a remarkable innovator. He did come up with these amazing ideas, but we do need to also credit the other people who contributed, and they should get some props for their work. Well, according to the story... Edison first got the idea for what would become the phonograph by accident. He had been working on a completely different piece of technology that was designed to record incoming Morse code messages from a telegraph machine. So his invention consisted of paper that was wrapped around a rotating drum, and a stylus connected to the incoming telegraph messages would move against the paper as the drum rotated, and it would make indentations that would indicate the dots and dashes from the Morse code. Edison told his buddy Edward H. Johnson about it, and how when Edison rotated the drum quickly, and the stylus vibrated against those indentations it had made, it would create this sort of humming noise. And Edison theorized that he could use a device like that If he fitted it with a diaphragm, as opposed to having it connected to a telegraph machine, he might be able to record sound directly to a physical medium and play it back. The diaphragm would vibrate, the stylus would move against the paper drum, and then if you spun it again, like if you reset the needle at the top and you spun the drum again, then it would cause that needle or that stylus to vibrate, transmit those vibrations to the membrane, and then you would have the sound again. Now, he was doing this independently. He he had not read of Crow's work, so this was not him copying someone else. He was just kind of theorizing to his buddy, and uh, he thought, eh, that's a neat idea. Well, Edward Johnson thought it was way more than a neat idea. He actually went and wrote to the journal Scientific American, uh, which published the letter that said Edison was working on a, quote, speaking telegraph, end quote, device. Now, this put a bunch of pressure on Edison. He was in a pickle. He needed to either get to work on actually inventing this thing he had sort of just been kind of hypothesizing about to his friend or risk facing a public failure in in not doing so. So he began to work in earnest on creating a gadget capable of recording sound to physical media. Edison created a design based on his ideas and then sent that design to a machinist in his employ named John Crusey. Crucy had worked for the Singer Sewing Machine Company before Edison hired him away, and he had impressed Edison with his astounding skill at fabricating machine parts that could bring to life Edison's ideas. The phonograph was no exception. With little more instruction from Edison than, build this, Crucy got to work fabricating the pieces necessary to make the first phonograph prototype. The original phonograph had a cylindrical drum upon which Edison would wrap a sheet of tinfoil. A needle would rest against the tinfoil, and when Edison would turn a crank, the cylinder would rotate, and the needle would move along the length of the cylinder slowly, creating a spiral groove as it did so. The needle was connected to a simple microphone's diaphragm, and by speaking very loudly into the microphone, which was essentially a trumpet... Edison could make the diaphragm vibrate, transmitting those vibrations to the needle, which would then create indentations in the tinfoil. So the needle's path in that spiral would vary according to those vibrations. On that first try, Edison recorded a nursery rhyme. Mary had a little lamb. 
After turning the crank and speaking loudly into the microphone, Edison stopped. He removed the needle from the cylinder. He raised the cylinder back to its starting point, placed a slightly different needle attachment against the tinfoil, which was connected to a small loudspeaker, and then turned the crank and the machine began to rotate the drum again. And the most amazing thing happened. The machine reproduced Edison's words. According to Edison, everyone was astonished that the device actually worked. And Edison himself said he was always terrified by inventions that worked the first time he tried them. Edison would create several more phonographs in this way, most of which were reserved for demonstration purposes. But his invention, while serviceable, had some big drawbacks. And one of those was that it was pretty fragile. Specifically, the tinfoil was really fragile. It would rip easily after just a couple of playbacks. And it would take some other innovative folks to come up with an alternative to tinfoil to push the the invention a little further. I'll talk about them in just a second. But first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Hey guys, it's Jonathan. And before we jump into the rest of this show, I just want to give a quick shout out to a new podcast that's come out from How Stuff Works, the soundtrack show hosted by David Collins. And I just thought it was thematically linked to the whole turntable idea. This is a show that's specifically about movie scores and soundtracks and how they affect the way we perceive the films, the life they have beyond films, the inspiration and influences that went into the creation of those soundtracks. This is my jam, guys. I love soundtracks. So if you are really passionate about music in general and movie music in particular, check it out. It's The Soundtrack Show. You can find it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And now back to the show. All right. So Edison's invention was met with enthusiasm, but others also wondered how the design might be improved upon to get a better quality of audio and more robust recordings that could last longer than a couple of playbacks. And a couple of scientists named Charles Sumner Tainter and Chichester Bell proposed an alternative. By the way, Chichester Bell was a cousin of Alexander Graham Bell, and they both worked for Alexander Graham Bell's Volta Laboratory. Alexander Graham Bell got a $10,000 grant as the inventor of the telephone, and he set up this Volta Laboratory using that money. They said that instead of using a sheet of tinfoil wrapped around the cylinder – they were going to use a cylinder of cardboard that would be coated with wax. Another difference between the two methods was that the wax cylinder phonographs would etch or engrave patterns on the wax, whereas the tinfoil predecessors depended upon indentations in the tinfoil. So think of it as, you know, as as going left and right across a surface as opposed to in and out of it using more or less pressure from a stylus. The cylinders, as I said, were made of cardboard coated in wax. Uh, they had a spring-powered motor that, in at least the later versions of this methodology, they used a spring-powered motor to provide power to move the components, which meant you no longer had to depend upon a hand crank to turn everything because if you're trying to keep a steady pace turning a hand crank, chances are you're going to slow down or speed up at different parts. That's going to affect the quality of the recording. They wanted to have a better way of maintaining consistency. So they went with this uh, spring motor. Now, you still had to wind up the motor. So if you've ever seen any images of people uh, winding up a gramophone very quickly and then allowing it to start to turn and then using the needle. That's essentially what's happening here. It's kind of like winding up the clockwork in a clock. This resulted in more even and replicable recording and playback sessions. The speed of those cylinders was faster than what you would find with vinyl record players decades later. A typical device would spin a cylinder at 120 revolutions per minute. So why would you want to go fast? Why not go slower? Why not record sound at a slower RPM? The main reason was due to volume. It turned out that if you turn these cylinders at a slower rate it would generate a much lower volume. The amplitude of the sound would be lower and it'd be harder to hear. So you had to create a faster speed, which would create stronger vibrations when the playback needle is running across this groove in a wax cylinder. 
And then that would result in the membrane vibrating more and you would have greater amplitude or volume in the sound. So it was really just a practical concern. It wasn't that there was any other reason, like any specific mechanical reason why it had to be 120 revolutions per minute. It was all about what can we do that will give us the best quality versus volume of sound. And at the time, that was pretty much it. The largest cylinders would you would allow you to record up to about three minutes of continuous sound at that rotational speed, although very few cylinders actually had a full three minutes of sound. Most of them were closer to two minutes. The wax would wear away or tear off after a couple of dozen playbacks, so you were still limited in how frequently you could listen to any given wax cylinder. It was better than tinfoil, but it still would degrade each time you listen. So really, you would think about every time you listen to one of these cylinders, there was wear and tear on that cylinder. You were effectively decreasing the number of playbacks by one every time you listen to it. And if you weren't gentle with them, you could break them. Pieces of the cylinder could break off, and then you would lose that part of the recording. So there still wasn't perfect. The Volta Lab fellas called their invention the graphophone, Edison, who by this time had moved on to work on other projects, namely the incandescent light bulb, heard of the graphophone and decided that he would give his phonograph idea another go. Originally, the Volta Labs came to Edison and proposed a collaboration. Edison, being a little more independently minded, if he wasn't in charge, he didn't necessarily want to be part of it, decided instead he would work on improving the phonograph on his own rather than collaborate with other inventors. So he chose to use cylinders made entirely out of wax instead of a cardboard cylinder with wax coating. This way, after the play surface had degraded to a point where it was no longer desirable, you could actually shave down the outside of the cylinder to create a new smooth recording surface. So you could put a whole new recording on there. The old recording would be lost because you shaved it, but you would be able to put new stuff on the old cylinder so you could reuse cylinders and make them a little more useful. A typical cylinder was 4.25 inches long, which is about 10.8 centimeters. And it was 2.1875 inches in diameter, or about 5.6 centimeters. Those cylinders were the ones that could hold about two minutes worth of stuff on them. In 1899, Edison introduced a model of the phonograph that could play cylinders that were the same length, as in they were still 4.25 inches long, but now they were thicker. They were 5 inches in diameter. That's about 12.7 centimeters. They could hold more recorded material, but they were also more expensive, as was the special phonograph that could play these cylinders. And because of that expense, not a whole lot of people bought them. Not a whole lot of people or businesses bought them. It was just prohibitively expensive. Edison's cylinders were made of a combination of beeswax, stearic acid, and sericin. Now, stearic or stearic wax, I guess I should say, combines stearic acid, which is a fatty acid from vegetable oil or from tallow, which is from animal fat. And the stearic acid helps hold wax's shape. So you would combine it with wax and that allows it, when it hardens, to maintain its relative shape. It doesn't lose that over time because you could think of wax as sort of like a very, very viscous fluid. Saracen is a paraffin wax. That means it's a petroleum product. So you would take that and combine that with the beeswax, which was clearly wax from bees, and the stearic wax, and that's what Edison used to make his cylinders that were better suited for phonographs. People began to call cylinders with recordings on them records. So originally records, in the sense of audio, meant these wax cylinders, not the discs that we associate with the word today. So you would have a, a record and it would be a wax cylinder. The various models of graphophones and phonographs had different output devices. Some graphophones, the earlier ones, had sort of stethoscope-like hearing attachments. So you would plug these directly into your ears. They would have a tube that would go straight to the graphophone. And the sounds would travel through the tubes to your ears. They were kind of like old-timey predecessors to today's earbuds. Others, the later models, would use a trumpet, a sound trumpet, through which sound would emerge. 
Uh, phonographs were very similar. These devices used acoustics to amplify sound as best they could. And in an upcoming episode, we'll talk more about the invention of speakers and how that changed things dramatically. A businessman named Jesse H. Lippincott purchased an exclusive license from the American Graphophone Company that was headed by the Volta Lab fellas. Then he acquired the Edison Phonograph Company from Edison. So he essentially had acquired one company and gotten the exclusive license from that company's competitor, which meant he had a united front, and the two companies could share best practices across each other. He would go on to purchase other companies in a similar fashion and created the North American Phonograph Company in 1888. Lippincott thought that the technology's only real application at that time was for business, essentially for taking dictation. But he encountered some resistance, specifically from stenographers. They did not like the idea of being pushed out of a job by a machine, which is a familiar story throughout all of the Industrial Revolution and leading up to even today. Automation is still a big topic when it comes to the impact on the job market. Well, the same was true in the 1880s. And business wasn't great for this new company. Within a couple of years, Lippincott was struggling, and his health was failing as well. So Edison, who had been a lender to Lippincott, the majority lender, uh, ended up assuming control of the company. And by 1892, he had increased the appeal of cylinders by branching into entertainment. He wasn't just producing business machines, but he would record people playing musical instruments or singing an aria from an opera or delivering a comedic monologue. And so he was really kind of pushing the phonograph as an entertainment device as well as a business device. He didn't abandon business. He just added to it. His cylinders became known as brown wax which is kind of funny because that was not always the actual color of the cylinders, but it did end up sticking. From here, things get a bit more businessy rather than technological. Edison would declare bankruptcy for the phonograph company. That gave him the opportunity to buy back the rights to the phonograph itself, the technology. And he did that in 1894. It took two years for this bankruptcy business to work its way through the entire process, so he wasn't allowed to sell phonographs until that concluded, which meant from 1894 to 1896, he continued working on developing the phonograph and improving the technology, but he couldn't actually sell any of them. In 1896, he was making phonographs for home users. Before, phonographs had either been business equipment or they had been restricted to places like bars or penny arcades as sort of a novelty entertainment system. You can think of them as sort of a proto-jukebox. Uh, so people could go and listen to music. They put like a nickel in the machine and then it would play for them a little song. But you wouldn't own one in your own home at that point. Now Edison was trying to change that. He was trying to create a home market for this technology. So he's bringing recorded music into the home, at least a home that could afford such a luxury. Mass manufacturing helped make this possible. In the early 1890s, a phonograph would set you back $150. Now, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics Consumer Price Index, that would be equivalent to about $3,900 today for a phonograph that could play two-minute-long recordings on wax cylinders. By the late 1890s, so one decade later, Edison had brought that price down on the standard phonograph to $20. That would be about the same as $563 in today's money. Or you could go bargain bin shopping and you could buy a model that they offered that was called the GEM, G-E-M. This one cost the bargain basement price of $7.50. Now, in 1899, that amount was still pretty considerable. If we convert that for today's money, you're talking about $211. So still pretty expensive, but more in the realm of affordability for at least a larger portion of potential customers. The cylinders, by the way, cost about 50 cents each. That would be about $14 in today's money. Now, keep in mind, this was for a cylinder that could hold two or maybe three minutes of material. So it's kind of like buying a single from a musical artist for 14 bucks. And those larger cylinders I mentioned earlier, if you wanted to get one that could hold more information on it, that would set you back uh, 
oh, about $4 per cylinder. So if we adjust that for inflation, you're talking $113 per cylinder. Now, keep in mind, those are reusable. Once you wear out the recording that was imprinted on the cylinder, you could have it shaved down and you could record something new on it, but you would still lose the first recording that was on there. So that's a tough sell. Now, the wax cylinders were expensive relatively because even though they were made out of inexpensive materials, wax was not hard to come by. They weren't easy to mass produce. You could mass produce them eventually, but it was never an easy process. In fact, Edison didn't hit upon a mass production method for his cylinders until 1901. Previously, every single cylinder went through an engraving process to have a recording set on that cylinder. The new method involved using a mold rather than engraving. It also meant the cylinders were made of a harder wax. So first you would create a master mold using gold electrodes to carve away the bits that don't represent sound. Uh, this was called a gold mold. You would then pour this uh, into or cast it as a mold. You would pour wax into the mold and you would allow the, the mold to harden or the, the wax to harden within the mold rather. A single mold could create up to 150 cylinders every day. Well, that made it possible to bring the price for the cylinders down to about 35 cents per cylinder in 1904, which would be about $6.60 in today's cash. So a little more reasonable. Uh, before that, though, it was just a painstaking process, which kept the price high. While all this was going on, the competitor to the cylinder was gaining popularity, and that would be the disc format, which eventually would evolve into the vinyl records we know and love today. But in their earliest days, there was no guarantee that they would win out in the format wars. We can trace the history of the record disc to its birth on November 8th, 1887. That's when Emil Berliner, a German who had moved to Washington, D.C., patented his own system for sound recording. Berliner has got a really fascinating past. He had originally worked for a dry goods store when he immigrated to the United States and began living in Washington, D.C. Later, he took on a job as a laboratory cleaning staff member for Konstantin Falberg. Falberg was the man who discovered and named the compound saccharin. While working for Falberg, Berliner became interested in the idea of experimentation and innovation. Berliner would go on to work for the American Bell Telephone Company. He even invented a loose contact telephone transmitter, which I think is quite a leap from a laboratory janitor. And by 1886, he started thinking about a device that would evolve into what we now call the gramophone. While Edison and the Volta boys were working with wax cylinders, Berliner proposed the flat disc as an alternative medium for sound recording. His original discs were made of glass, and he actually used a method similar to Scott's phonograph, tracing a pattern onto glass and then using a process called photo engraving to transfer those traced patterns onto a sturdier disc. This was, in fact, the methodology that Monsieur Charles Crow had suggested back in 1877. But Berliner was not aware of Crow's work. So he came to the solution independently. So you've got both Edison and now you've got, uh, you've got Berliner both coming up with similar ideas based upon something that someone else had, had thought of. Well, not based upon it, but similar to what someone else had thought of a decade earlier. And it's just kind of remarkable how these ideas were were independently arrived at. So Crow himself had never built a working device to bring his idea to life. Berliner actually took that step. And the photo engraving process is pretty cool. I'll give you a quick overview. First, uh, what you would do is you take the material you plan to engrave and you coat it with a light-sensitive photoresist chemical. So it's a chemical that when you expose that stuff to light will harden material. So you take the glass with the patterns traced on them, and you would use that as a mask against this blank disc of material, the material you're planning on engraving. The blacked out part on your glass disc, the part where the needle did not touch, that becomes a shield. It shields the light from hitting your blank disc. But the part where the needle traced 
is a little clear section, and light can pass through that and hit the material underneath. So you expose this combination to light. Typically, these days, we would use very powerful ultraviolet light. And the light moves through those those patterns that the needle made on the lamp black, and it then hardens that chemically treated material. Then you would use a special type of acid to dissolve some of the non-hardened material. You end up with raised portions that represent the etchings that were on your glass master. You can then use that to create a mold, and then you can start creating copies. But this method did not produce commercially viable results. Berliner realized that he was going to need some other methodology to make stuff that was going to be good enough to sell. So he then switched to a zinc disc and etching process. That involved coating the zinc with a mixture of beeswax and cold gasoline, believe it or not. He used a stylus attached to a diaphragm to etch the recorded sounds onto the coating. So again, you would make sounds into a trumpet. Those sounds would travel down the length of the trumpet, make a tiny membrane vibrate, and on the other end of the, vibra- uh, the vibrating membrane was a stylus that would rest against this coating and cause etchings to happen in it. He would actually coat the blank side of the disc with varnish. Now, remember, at this point, records were one-sided. They did not have grooves on both sides. One side was was completely smooth, and one side would have a recording on it. So the varnish would protect the blank side from what happens next, which was an acid bath. The acid would etch the lines made by the stylus into the grooves of the record. The rest of the disc would be still coated in beeswax mixture on that one side and varnish on the other, and thus they would remain unaffected by the acid. They would have this protective layer on top of them. So the result was a playable record. Unlike the wax cylinder devices, which could be used to record or play back a cylinder, Berliner's method required two separate devices, one for recording and one for playback. The playback one was the gramophone, which had its own playback needle. The needle was attached to the speaker or trumpet of the gramophone via an arm. So you have an arm on the end of which is a needle. The other end of the arm moves into this trumpet. When you put the needle against one of these discs and it's rotating, the etchings on the disc would cause the needle to vibrate. The needle would transmit those vibrations through the arm of the device to a membrane connected to the trumpet, and then sound would emit from the trumpet, and you would hear the playback. Berliner would phase the zinc discs out in favor of vulcanized rubber discs, and then later on for discs that were essentially plastic. The discs had two big advantages over cylinders. They held together better for repeat playings, and they could easily be mass-produced through pressings. You'd create a master recording on a special disc, you would make molds of that master recording, and then you would use blank discs and put those into the molds to create copies. So you could do this relatively quickly, especially compared to wax cylinders. Berliner built a prototype gramophone in 1888, and he demonstrated it at the Franklin Institute. The record he demonstrated was a 7-inch disc, meaning it measured about 18 centimeters across its diameter. And again, it only had a recording on one side. The other side was smooth. The gramophone he used at that time was still a hand-crank device. He had not yet worked with a machinist to create the spring motor version, and it was designed to rotate the disc 30 times per minute. That would end up changing as well, because again, like the wax cylinders... These slower rotations meant that you had lower volume as a result. The disc had a limit of about two minutes of recording on it in that prototype. So you might ask yourself, what was on that first disc during the demonstration? Well, it was It's Hip to Be Square by Huey Lewis in the News, which was a remarkable achievement because Huey Lewis wouldn't be born for another 62 years. I'm kidding. I don't know what was on the disc. It was likely some sort of spoken word presentation, but I I couldn't find an account of what was actually recorded on this demonstration disc. So if you happen to know what Emil Berliner recorded on his demonstration disc for the Franklin Institute, make sure you send me a message because I couldn't find it. But he did make a deal with a German company called Kammerer and Reinhardt to produce a toy version of his invention for hand-turned gramophone players. 
The company produced small runs of the device and discs, but it was really nothing more than a novelty at that point. So how did the gramophone find commercial success beyond that small market in Germany? And what did it have to do with the phonograph? And how did this combined technology nearly die before its time? Well, I'll answer all those questions in the next section, but first let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. By 1893, Berliner was ready to take the next big step. First, he got some investment money from some New York backers and created the American Gramophone Company. This venture was a bit premature, and it failed to make any real progress. In fact, for a long time, it was just lost to obscurity. No one even remembered it was a thing. It resurfaced only in the 1990s when a researcher named Raymond Weil rediscovered evidence for it. But that failure did not stop Berliner. He then created the United States Gramophone Company. And his goal was to create commercial disc players for the average person. The first discs he tried to market were made from vulcanized rubber. A few of them were made out of celluloid, but that did not hold up very well. And by 1895, he then began to switch to a version that was made out of shellac compound to create the discs. It was harder uh, it was easier to work with than the vulcanized rubber. It was around this time that a machinist named Eldridge Johnson improved upon Berliner's design by adding that spring motor I had mentioned earlier to drive the turntable. That removed the necessity to hand crank the device, although you still had to wind up the motor. The commercial discs were meant to be played back at a speed of between 60 and 75 repetitions per minute, with 70 being the most common speed. This kept the 7-inch discs to about 2 minutes of music. Now, how could those speeds, which were faster, more than twice as fast than Berliner's prototype, hold that same amount of music as the prototype? Shouldn't they be able to hold less than that? If, if, they're, if they're traveling faster, then the needle goes through the spiral faster, right? Well, it was because Berliner had refined the method of creating the spiral path on the discs, he was able to make those spirals tighter and maximize the amount of information he could store on a single side of a 7-inch disc. So why those higher speeds? Well, I mentioned that. The higher speed would produce more intense vibrations in the playback needle, which increased the amplitude of the sound wave. So again, that was driven by necessity. There was no electronic amplification, so you had to rely upon physics, just basic vibrations to create the the sound, and you weren't really able to turn up the volume. So you had a consistent limitation on the amount of information you could put on a disc because the needle would travel the full length of the spiral groove in the disc in about two minutes. So how did the disc win out over the wax cylinder, which had already been on the market for a while? Several advantages helped seal the deal. First, wax cylinders were still pretty fragile. They would break after a few dozen playbacks. Typically, that meant that you had to start all over again. You could create a new recording, but your old one was gone. They were also harder to store. The wax cylinders were more difficult to store safely. They took up more space, and you would have to put them in boxes, perhaps with additional protection around each cylinder if you wanted to make sure you weren't damaging them between playthroughs. There was no easy way to label the cylinders on the actual wax cylinder itself, which meant if you lost a label, like if you had a little container that the cylinder would sit in and somehow you lost the container you would have no idea what was actually on that cylinder. And the only way to find out would be to insert it into a machine and start it up to hear what was on there. And just that act would reduce the number of times you could listen to the wax cylinder because you're putting wear and tear on it. So cylinders were also more expensive because, again, they were harder to mass produce. In contrast, record discs were easy to store. You could plop a label on each one, or you could stamp a label on each one at the center to indicate what was on the record. So you knew immediately whatever was recorded on the thing. They were easy to mass produce, which brought down the price and made it more economical than wax cylinders. And the early record discs were made out of pretty strong stuff, meaning they weren't likely to be damaged and they could withstand far more playthroughs than a wax cylinder. Two other big elements helped make the gramophone and, more importantly, the record disc a success. One was that Berliner wasn't just a keen inventor. 
He was a pretty astute businessman in those early days. He had his United States gramophone company in D.C., but he also licensed his designs to a group of entrepreneurs in Pennsylvania, and they founded the Berliner Gramophone Company of Philadelphia. That group, in turn, hired a man named Frank Seaman. Seaman created the National Gramophone Company in New York. Now, manufacturing for the players mainly took place in D.C., and also a little bit in Philadelphia, as did the disc production. But these regional companies sort of acted as distributors for Berliner's technology. So there was no real easy way to get these inventions to other markets otherwise, right? It's not like there were vast networks of stores that you could send these to. This is still in the days where the department store was starting to take form, but it was still pretty rare. You had a lot of dry goods stores in, and little tiny shops. So it was hard to get a national presence. And this was one way of doing it, was to create various companies that all would work together. By the late 1890s, uh, the gramophone extended beyond the United States. The Another trend that was helping uh, drive that demand. So you had other countries suddenly saying, hey, we want gramophones too. And that helped the economic uh, output of this particular industry. But there was another thing that was a really important element that made the gramophone popular, and that was industrialization. With industrialization, people began to have more free time during a day because they used to have to work a full day. What, what would be spent in labor all day long could now be spent, at least in part, in leisure. You didn't have as many working hours because machines took a lot of the load off of you. So you didn't necessarily return home after 12 hours of work and then you ate something and then you collapsed in bed. Now you actually had a few extra hours to fill and that created a demand for a whole new industry, the entertainment business. Gramophones met this demand, allowed people to enjoy music or comedy or even lectures if they wanted to in their own homes, although in very short bursts because... You are limited to about two minutes of recorded stuff per disc. Berliner's businesses went on to face copycats, two of which the company was able to shut down through legal moves, but the third, the Zonophone, represented a bit of a betrayal. Two executives who had been working at the National Gramophone Corporation, including Frank Seaman, became executives of a competitor company called Universal Talking Machine Company. And they were still working for the National Gramophone Corporation. So the Berliner Company in Philadelphia took issue with this. They said, this is a conflict of interest. But the whole mess eventually went to the courts, and the court ultimately passed an injunction on the Berliner Gramophone Company. That effectively shut them down. Berliner himself decided he wanted to get out of this cutthroat business and work on other things, so he eventually passed his patent rights on to the machinist Eldridge R. Johnson. That's the guy who created the spring motor for the early gramophone. Johnson would then go take the remains of the Berliner Gramophone Company of Philadelphia and create a new company called the Victor Talking Machine Company. Victor for short. Victor would become the biggest and most famous record company in the world. Over time in the United States, people began to use the term phonograph or phonogram to refer to gramophones. The gramophone name itself began to fade from memory in the United States. In other countries, people still used gramophone to describe the disc-based record machines. But in the U.S., the gramophone's old rival became the generic term for playback machines. However, the gramophone did lend its name to an award. The Grammys take their name from the gramophone. One other thing Berliner did that made a literal stamp on the record industry was the creation of a registered trademark. While he was in London, Berliner saw a painting that showed a small terrier sitting in front of a gramophone. The terrier's head is cocked a little bit to the side as it appears to listen to whatever was coming out of the gramophone's trumpet. An English artist named Francis Barad had painted this portrait, and he used his own dog, Nipper, in the model. Berliner purchased a copy of this painting, brought it back over to the United States, and immediately applied to create a registered trademark for the image. 
Now, by the time he was granted this trademark, it was too late because the Berliner uh, Gramophone Company of Philadelphia had the injunction against it. But he went on and passed the trademark on to Eldridge Johnson. So Eldridge Johnson made it the image for the Victor Record Company, and they used it from that point forward. And the trademark has the well-known name, His Master's Voice. Oh, and after all that, Berliner went on to develop other technologies, like the helicopter. But that's a subject for another show. In 1912, Berliner's method was given additional credence because the Edison Company began to produce disc players and the Edison Disc Record. At that stage, the records were still pretty short, their price had dropped, but something else was emerging that would nearly eliminate the market for the record player for the home consumer, and also record discs for the home consumer. That something that nearly wiped out the whole industry was radio. Now, I've talked about the history of radio before, about how people like Nikola Tesla and Marconi were instrumental in getting the technology out of the laboratory and into the real world. The Tesla-Marconi story is another one filled with drama, as Tesla was originally granted patents in the U.S. uh, regarding radio in advance of Marconi, but then the patent office would eventually overturn Tesla's patents in favor for the better-connected Marconi's submissions, but we're not going to get into that story here. It is good to point out that Marconi's first demonstration of a wireless communications device took place on December 12th, 1896, he used radio waves to send a signal across a room. Five years later, he'd repeat that demonstration on a much grander scale by sending a radio transmission across the Atlantic Ocean. But at that stage, radio wasn't something the common person would ever have any experience with. The foundation for commercial radio was laid in 1906 on Christmas Eve when Reginald Fessender sent a voice transmission across radio to wireless operators on board ships off the coast of New England. Up to that point, the only signals that had been sent via radio were the beeps of Morse code messages. Voice transmission created an entirely new opportunity. For the next decade and a half, radio was used for commerce and for experimental purposes, and some average citizens got to play with radio. They became amateur radio operators, ham operators. When World War I broke out, it suddenly became very important to be able to produce radios in, in support of military efforts, so... Governments began to build out enormous manufacturing facilities or fund manufacturing facilities. Those all began staffed by people. They learned how to make radios. They began to churn radios out for the military. But after the war was over, it meant that you had the building blocks for a brand new industry just waiting to happen. They could produce radios for the average citizen. In 1920, Dr. Frank Conrad, who was an amateur radio enthusiast in Pittsburgh, had started to take to playing records over the radio for the entertainment of his fellow hobbyists. He got a message from the company Westinghouse. Now, Westinghouse was in the business of making radios, and they wanted to nurture this potential new business of consumer radios. Together, Conrad and Westinghouse created the world's first commercial broadcast radio station in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. They received the designation KDKA, and it started broadcasting on November 2nd, 1920, which was Election Day in the United States. They chose that day because they figured they could actually broadcast the election results to listeners and beat out all the newspapers by spreading the word early, and that would cement how important the consumer radio would be as a viable product. It worked. And soon, the radio became an incredibly popular piece of home entertainment technology. The radio gave listeners a chance to tune into totally different stations and get lots of different types of programming. Some of those stations would play music off of records. Well, that removed the necessity to have a home record player. There was no reason to have a phonogram in your house because you could just turn on the radio and listen to music that way for free. You purchase the radio, and once you've done that, you have access to all sorts of music. Whereas if you bought a phonogram, you would still have to go out and buy the individual discs to listen to any sort of music. So, a lot of people said, well, why do I want to do that? There's no reason. I'll just uh, I'll just get my music. Now, if this sounds familiar, you might think, wait, that sounds a lot like 
the way music is today, whether you go out and you buy a digital album or you even buy a CD or vinyl album, or you just stream music using a popular streaming service, similar to what was happening in the 1920s. it, It was a time where people said, well, I could go and purchase all that music, or I can just listen to stuff over the radio. Now, granted, it wasn't on demand like it is today with streaming. You were stuck with whatever the DJs would play for you, but same basic principle. The phonogram industry faced a sharp decline once radio caught on, and it did not take long for radio to catch on. By 1924, just four years after the first commercial radio station, there were more than 600 commercial radio stations across the United States. So, how did the phonogram make a return to popularity? How did it become a, a, a home entertainment system? again, after the rise of radio? How did it avoid the fate of becoming a device just used by radio stations and no one else? We'll explore that in our next episode. So look forward to the next episode where we continue the story of the evolution of the turntable, how it became a staple piece of electronics in homes for many decades, how it then faded from popularity and how it returned, as well as What the heck do all those doohickeys on a DJ's turntable, what do they do and how do they work? We're going to cover all that in our next episode. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. If you have suggestions for future episodes, I'm doing a whole bunch of shows based off listener suggestions. I would love to see more of them. Send me an email. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or you can drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle at both of those is techstuffhsw. Head over to Instagram. We've got an Instagram account. Make sure you follow us there. And remember, you can watch me record this show live on Wednesdays and Fridays at twitch.tv slash techstuff. Just go to that URL. You'll see the schedule there. I hope to see you over there in the chat room. I love to see listeners join in conversations over there. They're a lot of fun. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 